Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Just a year, Ballyhoo. Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo is going to ask an important question. Can you combine gangsters and musical into one setting without it being the movie Bugsy? Well, it would only take a story by Norman Krasna, the direction of Fritz Long, and the powerful presence of George Raft and Sylvia Sidney to create such an endeavor. It's Slapdap hilarious it's got a message it's the one and only you and me from 1938 so see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds hello joe hello mickey you got a minute nope now listen joe i got a proposition on interest a smart guy like you I'm leaving town tonight. I figured you wouldn't stick to no 8 o'clock job much longer. What are you going to do? Get another 8 o'clock job. Then why the trip? They tell me the climate will do me good. Everything grows big out there. Yeah? Well, don't get too big for your old friends, Joe. We might not like it. That'll be too bad. Hello? Hello. Been waiting long? Seems like days. Where's your grip? Oh, uh, I checked it at the bus station. I've been looking at that again. Gee, just imagine some girls could go in there and buy it and think nothing of it. Just smell them, isn't it? But Joe, it's our of ecstasy. Is it? <laughs> Joe, you just don't understand, I guess. There isn't anything in the world that can build a girl up like good perfume. It does something for her. So kind of. See? No. It must be very simple to be a man. Would you like to be one? No. Um, yes, I don't know. Sometimes I think it'd be easier to be a man. But then, women are so much... You don't think very much of women, do you? I never did. Before. I'll never forget the time you stayed up all night telling me not to get discouraged after you found out I'd been in jail. I didn't find out. You told me. I never told anybody else. Why did you tell me? I never believed that a fellow and a girl could be friends like us. It is unusual. Where are we heading? I don't know. I thought you knew. What do you say we wouldn't dance around once? I'd love to. Let's go. The 
much you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, by this point in 1938, Fritz Long had already emigrated to America and established his name as one to be reckoned with amid the American directorial scene. Yet, the film You and Me would pose for Fritz Lang quite a challenge in terms of interest and desire. Uh, needless to say, Fritz Long saw this as nothing more than an assignment. And yet, this movie that comes out of a post-code era that allows the gangster film to exist, provided that it loosens up on its more grittier details, it does manage to give Fritz Long a chance to exercise his directorial muscles. Additionally, it provides a sort of softer side to the otherwise tough George Raft. But how does this film teach lessons about films we see today? And more importantly, should gangster musicals exist? Well, to answer that question, we need a return guest. He has proven his expertise in Japanese cinema and in Ilya Kazan cinema, but more importantly, he has been our Fritz Long correspondent all the way from New York. Please welcome back to the show, Mr. Henry Jarvis. Hello, everybody. I'm glad to be here. Well, I I guess you... Uh, uh, well, let's let's get this off the bat, Henry. What's up? I, I mean, I will say <laughs> I am here to give my expertise in gangster cinema. Uh, I yes, think you I'm, are. I'm the one to go to. I live in New York, therefore, I'm technically. A, I'm gonna. I'm gonna think I'm a gangster. I work with the Italian mob now. It's going well. If you need a hit, <laughs> hit me up on Fiverr. Uh, and so. <laughs> Just, just blow it out there to the world. Yeah, I mean, As, uh, we're 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 fans of uh, we hate movies podcast and their their constant phrase of this is a pro mafia show. This this is also I test a pro mafia show. It's a pro mafia. Except- oh yeah, now I live here. I have to say I have to I have to probably say that. So, like, <laughs> you don't have to say that. You have to deal with this. But say it, Jarvis. Say it. Okay, okay, sir. Please don't kill me. <laughs> uh, so let's get this off the bat. Last time you were on the show. You made some bold proclamations about being everybody's favorite guest on Value. <laughs> and once well, more... Ha- have I been proven wrong yet? <laughs> so No, 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 not yet. Um, but uh, since then also, you've gone for the consecutive record because you're now tied at four appearances uh, with Adam Jewell. So now you guys are neck and neck, and I'm going to oh. make you guys fight each other in a battle ring in a Thunderdome of sorts. That's it's going to be... I accept the challenge. A, I, uh, hearts will be broken. Uh, people will be killed. Um, not you two, just probably me. Yeah. And the, yeah, somehow you've both decided to. We'll both team up. Throw, we'll start our own podcast yeah. by ourselves. Throw, this, so. throw two that you both throw spears at me, and I just fall to the ground. Yeah. I'm just like this is what it feels like when doves cry, and then you kick my head, going, "Stop it!" Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, this came about though. Rather suddenly, because I, uh, for those who don't know, like I, I've been trying and failing <laughs> to do a movie, a golden age Hollywood movie a day. Um, I've been pretty successful with consecutive stuff for the first two months before I fell off due to the Benny convention and stuff. But I'm picking myself back up. And I loved our Fritz Lang episode so much. It got really good reception from people enjoying it. Um other people who have been discovering the show have seen that episode exist and go like, well, I'm definitely going to listen to some Fritz Long talk. Um, so I decided I want to keep building up my long knowledge when it comes to his American work. Um, I'm very, very limited. Um, and uh, the, the two big ones that I've seen the most have been noirs. Um, but I found while searching through Fritz Long on YouTube for his silent films that may not 
be in my possession on Blu-ray, uh, I found You and Me from 1938. Um, and I looked at the description, and they said it was a noir, but it's a musical, but it's a farce, but it's a comedy. And I'm like, well, I've got to see what the hell this is. And within the first 25 minutes, I said to myself, I want to talk about this movie. And then after the movie was over, I texted you and said, Henry, can you book yourself? <laughs> can you, would you want to do this as quickly as possible? Emergency meeting. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. This is like, a, this is a rare, this normally never happens. Normally this show is pre-planned weeks in advance for each individual guest. It gives them time to watch the film. It gives us time to process the material. This is going to be a very raw unfiltered discussion yeah. when it comes to us ingesting the knowledge. Um, so apologies to the people who normally want as thorough detail as possible, well thought out. But I think it's important to talk about this film off the top of our hats without a bunch of soaking in on stuff because this film is very base level. We'll, we'll throw that right out there. On the surface, this is a crime film of its era from 1938, which at the time, gangster films had been relegated to, we've got to make them either comedies or somehow uplifting by the end, but we can't do the gritty films we were doing in the pre-code era. Now, Henry, I want to ask a question. What is your experience with gangster films of this era, pre-code or post-code? Uh, I'm not as well-versed in this as I am other things. Uh, I've seen a good handful of stuff uh, from, like, the like the Columbia Noir and that kind of era. Uh, yeah. But, Any uh, uh, Cagney or Public Enemy in your life or anything like that? I'm sure I have, but I, it's Ooh, not something that I'm yeah. familiar with. Like, it's like, I'm sure I've seen it, but I have no recollection at this point of it. And so... Right on. Well, I love that you brought up the Columbia Noir films, because those are, like, those are in a postcode era, but they still carry that grit and that yeah. raw that raw feel to them. So, were you surprised at all by the tone of this film? Um, at all? Not, not particularly. And none of it really was like, wow, shocking. Uh, but it was very, like, it's, uh, I guess I should say, I was surprised by how much fun it was. Like, the, like the, the how they use, like, the, the music <laughs> is a lot more fun than how it normally goes so yeah well this is and this is this is an, this is important to point out is that you and me is a movie that is grasping onto the desperation of giving vehicles for actors known for gangster films something to do yeah before we jump into fritz long's end of this let's let's talk a little bit about george raft i'm i'm gonna go uh i'm gonna go off of an assumption that I think is confident is that this is your first George Raft film, isn't it, Henry? <laughs> yes, I'm glad that that was the assumption you made, and not that I've seen much not, more of not, him. <laughs> not be, not because, not because of that. I did not mean to insult. No, Please I, excuse me. I'm not me. taking it as an insult. <laughs> it's more that George Raft is a name that I don't think translates as well today as Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, or Edward G. Robinson. I would agree with that. Raft is a figure that was very noted and respected in his era as the kind of actor that he was. And he, he lived all the way, he lived up into his eighties. He, he died or like 79, but he made it up to the eighties. So people still know who he was. Um, he's a man who, if you've watched the movie, little Caesar and listened to our discussion on little Caesar, ladies and gentlemen, the Douglas Fairbanks jr. Character is lightly inspired by George raft, uh, to a degree. The idea of a dancer who was friendly with the mob 
coming in uh, is 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 very prevalent in Raph's backstory. Um, but we'll get him at the beginning and bring you into a very, I think, remarkable life leading up to even being in Hollywood. He's born in Hell's Kitchen uh, to Matt and Ava Murdoch. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's born in Hell's Kitchen to Ava and Conrad Ronft. Ronft, a German immigrant and the son of a German immigrant. There is a discrepancy on his birth date. Raft claimed as late as his appearance on the Mike Douglas show in the 1980s that his birth year was in 1895. Uh, the New York birth index shows otherwise, with him listed as September 26, 1901, and the 1910 census lists him as the age of eight. So it's not quite the same lying about your age as we're used to, where you try to go younger. Yeah. <laughs> Raft tried to go older. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I'm allowed to buy liquor. What of it? <laughs> um, and he grew up on 41st Street working as an errand boy and a fish wrapper. He's then sent to live with his grandparents on 164th Street. Raff leaves school at the age of 12 and home altogether at 13. Um, in his early life, his mother taught him to dance, and he would exhibit his skills at carnivals and amusement parks with his parents, uh, which when I read that, I was just like, what, were they making him like show for fucking nickels? <laughs> You gotta earn your living now. Uh, and then he went for an apprenticeship as an electrician for a year and then went on to be a professional boxer for two years, starting at the age of 15. So already fish rapper, errand boy, electrician, apprentice who can dance, and now a boxer. Can you think of anybody in our current show business lexicon that has that same kind of experience? Well, I can't. I mean,. Not yet, but I feel like with certain career moves, Timothy Chalamet could get there, and so really, I think so. You know, did did he ever um did he ever do electric work um uh for a big corporate building at all? Like get in there and get in. I mean, not yet, but with the right career move, he could. So (laughs) he he takes a break from acting to become an electrician's apprentice. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's right in the Chalamet wheelhouse. It's the it's the uh, it's it's just it's the Daniel Day Lewis move. Yeah, it's how he's going to train for Dune Part Two. He's going to go be an electrician. (laughs) So and then he's going to become a boxer so that he can fight the aliens. Yeah, of course. I've not seen. I haven't seen Dune yet. I don't remember David Lynch's Dune. Bear with me. It's it's Dune, the film with the electricians who fight aliens and so. so now he box he boxes under the name of Dutch Roft. So he's a German, a German, a German a son of a German immigrant boxing under the name of Dutch. Uh, goes for fourteen bouts and nine victories, three losses and two draws. There are other records that show he went in twenty five bouts and he got KO'd seven times. So boxing not in his wheelhouse. He leaves that. He even joined a minor league baseball team. <laughs> Oh, just like t- Timmy Chalamet. Just like Timothy Chalamet. He joined Major League. And then, um, he said this about it. I was just trying to figure out something that I liked and that would make me a living. I saw guys fighting, so I fought. I saw guys playing baseball, so I played ball. Then I saw guys dancing and getting paid for it. I like this is his idea of a day job. It's like this whole acting thing is more cowling. I'm more concerned with the idea of, like, I just saw these guys doing something, and I thought I could do that. So if he saw two people kicking another guy for money, for protection money, would he think, say, what a wonderful idea. I mean, if, I mean, if when you can your get boy, paid for it. 
I mean, yeah, and you can get wonderful suits, and then your mother goes, oh my god, you look like a gangster, and then uh, Ray Liotta starts talking over over your head. Of course. Um, but, uh, but that's how all of our lives are led. Ray Liotta narrates our lives, because they're all just creaming, to, waiting to crash. Whenever I'm trying um, to make a big life decision, I try to think of, how would this sound from Ray Liotta's mouth looking back on my <laughs> life? <And> so... <laughs> Then I got the bread, and then I got the ham, and then I got the cheese, and I made the sandwich, and I had to get it eaten by five, or I was going to be late for a Zoom meeting. And then after that, I'm like, I could eat the sandwich, and then I just go ahead and do it. (laughs) So that's my thought process. And then a gun goes, freeze, and it goes like, that's when I realized it was up. The whole jig was up. The sandwich, it never got eaten. And my life was destroyed. Is that Cinema Scorsese? Yeah. Yes, it is, Henry. It is. It is. It is. People flying around in suits, not cinema. People eating a sandwich, cinema. <laughs> um, um, but actually, it's funny. You might think you might have gone into a career like that. After all, when your boy, boy when your boyhood friend, not boyfriend, boyhood friend, is Benjamin Siegel or Bugsy Siegel. Wow, that's surprising. You might, you might be tempted to, yeah. He was boyhood friends with Bugsy Siegel, and when he started going into his dancing career, he made friends with people such as Larry Fay, Oni the Killer Madden, and Enoch Nucky Johnson, who would be the inspiration for Nucky Thompson in Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> no, 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 theme song, go away, go away, go away, no, we're, <laughs> we're not talking about Boardwalk Empire and Eddie Cantor being in it. <laughs> we're talking about this this wonderful career of George Raft's. Now, George Raft uh, eventually got toned, told by Oni Madden that he should be in motion pictures, and Raft made the decision, like, I'm going to go. He relocates to Hollywood in 1927. He appears on a stage show by the Texas Gyne, by Texas Guinan called Nightclub, got good reviews in the Los Angeles Times. They said he scores a tremendous individual hit. <laughs> Um, which I've never heard that phrase before, individual hit. But um, like you don't, you don't say that about some films. Like, yeah, the way back is a so-so movie, but Ben Affleck is an individual hit in the movie. <laughs> um, he makes his screen de- screen debut in Queen of the Nightclubs, starring Tex- Texas Guinan, uh, and he follows it with films like Gold Diggers of Broadway and Side Street. Um, his dancing skills get noticed by Roland Brown who make who put who puts him in a role opposite Spencer Tracy in a movie called Quick Millions um, and then he appears alongside James Cagney and Loretta Young in an unbilled role dancing called Taxi um, and this all leads to the mother of all gigs Scarface Raft's big break comes as the second lead to Paul Muni in that movie. And when you watch Scarface and realize it's better than De Palma's version, you can see that Raft has a presence about him. And it's it, it propelled him into the gangster sphere. He then signs a contract with Paramount in 1932 uh, and stars in the movie Madam Racketeer. Um, and they ref- uh, reviews referred to him as having menacing suavity, <laughs> which is I never knew the word suavity existed. Um, he gets put in several different films, but then gets suspended when he refuses to appear in the story of Temple Drake. 
with Miriam Hopkins, a notorious pre-code film, because he did not want to play a sadist. Um, so he said, "I'm. it's not that I mind being a guy on the wrong side of the law, but I won't take a role that's a pure heel. The character has to have some ray of warmth, some redeeming quality, or it just isn't real. So Raft gets borrowed by 20th Century Fox, and he does a period piece called The Bowery. And then he goes back to paramount for all of me gets in bolero gets in the glass key and he kind of runs the range between comedy and gangster and raft is a guy who comes off as difficult when you read about him and we're talking about raft prior to his Warner Brothers career because his first big Warner Brothers get is Each Dawn I Die. And in it, he plays a fellow inmate to James Cagney who gets put away uh, and starts exposing the prison system. And it's a great role for him, but it's not the role you'd expect from a man coming off of you and me. You'd figure that there would be a balance between sinister but sweet in each dawn I die, he's just a monster, <laughs> but he's a good monster that redeems himself at the end because that's how these films would have to go. So how does Fritz Lang enter in all this? Well, let's back up, ladies and gentlemen. Last time we saw, I was making the, the, the noted sound debut of mine called M. I revolutionized the serial killer film. The Nazis hated me and I left. And then I came to America and made a movie with Spencer Tracy and established my name as Fritz Fury Lang because the movie he made, Fury, in 1935 really set him up in the American scene. But there were some things we didn't talk about uh, amid Long's leaving Germany. We talked about his frequent collaborator, Thea von Harbaugh. Thea von Harbaugh was married to Long in 1922 and they divorced in 1933, two years after... Now, I did not fully realize the reason. Apparently, Theo von Harbaugh was a devoted Nazi. Oh. <laughs> That's unfortunate. <laughs> when, when Hitler rose to power, uh, Harbaugh was loyal to the new regime. Uh, at around 1934, she, uh, on her own initiative, wrote and directed Elisabeth und Dernar and Hannes Himmelfart. Um and but she did not find directing satisfactory and continued being a scenarist. Um, she got held by the end of World War II in Stamhul, uh, the British prison camp. Um, and Harbaugh claimed that she only joined the party to help Indian immigrants in Germany, like her husband. Hmm, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I I I think Lang got out of the marriage quickly. Here's a fun here's a fun idea, guys. Okay. If you find out your significant other, man, woman, doesn't matter. If you find out that they're a Nazi, leave them. <laughs> it's one of Love those red flags that you're allowed to just walk away with. And so Yeah. I think you can extend that to today with uh QAnon. Yeah. Let's <laughs> just going like, you know, yeah, I'm sorry, no. You you don't have to like Talk to your friends. You don't have to be like, hey, this weird thing happened. You can just go. Like, that's usually how yeah. that... When that comes up, you can just leave. So... Thea, Thea, look at me. Look at me. 
And you're telling me that you are a na- Oh, fuck. Yeah, I'm going to go. I mean, I'll come back intermittently to get my money out of Europe, but I'm going to go. <laughs> and their last collabor- their last collaboration together was the Testament of Dr. Mabusa before their divorce. Uh, Testament of Dr. Mabusa, the second in the Dr. Mabusa for long trilogy, but it ended up being a series of films in the 60s as well after Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa. Um, long uh, gets the fuck out of Dodge. Um, and uh, by the time he left and came to America, it seems like he was able to find a career right away. Now, his first setup at a studio was at MGM. He signs with MGM. And as he signs with MGM, they assign him the crime drama Fury with Spencer Tracy. It's about a man who's wrongly accused of a crime uh, and nearly killed when a lynch mob sets jail sets fire to a jail. Um, <laughs> and this was a big hit, a big hit for him. He starts getting interesting work after that, and he and he eventually collaborates with Sylvia Sidney, the star of today's film, but. He signs a contract with Paramount, and this is the only film he makes for Paramount. (laughs) And I wonder why, until I remembered the movie we watched. (laughs) Because I love this movie, but this is not something that stretches him as a filmmaker at all. I think we can, I think we can say that it allows him places to try things. Yeah. But he did not like working on this. There's a, there's a series of Fritz Lang interviews. Um, and uh, he, he starts it off with, he starts off talking about you and me by recalling his Brechtian influence. In response to a question, he says, I don't remember how we met. You know, Madam Eisner was the first person to say that Breck that to, to 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 say to Brecht that he was the most important German poet of his time. I believe Brecht influenced everyone. In the U.S., I made my first flop, my first failure, you and me. I had wanted to make a didactic film. I worked with Kurt Weil, who eventually left the project because of other commitments. Then I was li- left with a screenplay written for music. So he's kind of left dangling yeah. <laughs> for this film. Now, this film had a production that Went through a couple of different hands. Originally, it was asked by William William LeBaron of Paramount if Norman Krasda, the noted screenwriter who was best known for Screwball and Cases of Mistaken Identity, made films such as Princess O'Rourke, uh, Midnight, a, a giant of, of Screwball comedy. He was asked, could he come up with a vehicle for George Raft? Krasna agreed only if he was allowed to direct. Carol Lombard wrote, read the script and wanted to be involved. Krasna then leaves the project. There's a couple of different stories as to what happens here because Krasna says that Paramount didn't want a first-time director to be entrusted with a Lombard raft film and were trying to get him out of there. There's a report in 1936 from New York Times saying that Raft didn't want Krasna to direct the film. And Raft was put on suspension for the pushback, it seems. And his $24,000 salary was withheld. 
Um, so the film is kind of stalled. Months later, BP Schoberg decided to reactivate it. He gets Sylvia Sidney to replace Lombard. And then Raft comes back to do the film. Um, Schoberg left as producer and Fritz Long is brought aboard the project. So I'm I'm wondering why. (laughs) I'm wondering why you get the guy who directed Fury to do it. Now, granted, directors of this era were expected to a certain degree to pick up any genre. You had to have a multifaceted talent. Michael Curtiz is the best example of that. He can make a comedy. uh, He can make an adventure film like Robin Hood. He can make a gangster drama like Angels and Dirty Faces. And he can make a sincere drama like a Mildred Pierce or Casablanca. So he's, he's able to fit a bunch of spaces. Fritz Long is sort of the same. Because in Germany, he made films of different tones and different genres. Destiny is not a crime film. <laughs> Der Nieberlungen is not a crime film. It is a epic German film that was then repurposed by the Nazi party as a piece of propaganda for the German triumph and the German will. Um, and Metropolis is a fucking sci-fi movie. And he makes Women on the Moon, which, as we discussed, is well, certainly not a crime film. Yeah. Um <laughs> Um, it's a film that was designed to sell rockets as we talked about last time. Um, and I think that this throws him for a loop because he doesn't think the story's strong enough. I get the feeling that that's what this is because he just seems so fucking upset with the idea of having to do it. And it shows in the film. (laughs) I don't know how else to put it. It's, it's, it's weird to have this director from Germany being imported over here, making a film that's somewhat in line with his spiel, and then being expected to to turn this gangster musical screwball comedy into something of merit. And I, I want to ask, how obvious is it that this is a Fritz Lang film to you, Henry, as somebody uh, who's more familiar with his German work? Um, I mean, honestly, if you... If you showed me this and said, who directed this? I don't know if Fritz Long would be one of the first who came to mind. I mean, mm-hmm. I think stylistically it doesn't really fit, at least what I'm familiar with, with the rest of his filmography. Uh, I mean, you got some stuff in there, but I didn't, unless I'm, I missed something. Uh, I think we'll, when we get to the imagery, we can talk about it, but I yeah. agree with you. If you showed somebody this without the title cards at the beginning, yeah, and have them watch it all the way through, you might think, Shit, maybe Archie Mayo, um, even Michael Curtiz. You can see Michael Curtiz doing this. But from frame one, if you are familiar with Long, something should hit upon you. I I feel. But I don't think I don't think just watching M would cover it. Yeah. I think you'd have to watch a couple more long films to yeah. fully understand it. And within that, we can get into the plot of this film. Um we open up on, first of all, it's a Fritz Long production. So he's already established himself as a name. So he gets that, a Fritz Long production, like a Howard Hawks production. He gets that sort of vibe. And we are thrust into the 
audacity of consumerism. <laughs> Uh, you cannot get something for nothing, and only a chump would try it. Right here we are treated to this montage of expressionist imagery that deals with consumerism in America, and the idea of money gets you everything you want. And rather than doing a musical number, it's a montage. It's a montage of fucking like all the things you can buy, including women diving off diving boards. <laughs> You can you can buy a diver, Henry. Congratulations. You can buy a diver. That's what you've always wanted, right? A diver? Every Christmas. It's the top of Every the list. Christmas. Mom, Dad, did I get that diver? Sorry, son. Santa couldn't get, bring it this year also. That's illegal. Aw, dang it. Um, he, we get the opening of this, like, this big department store. We see our lead heroine, Helen, played by Sylvia Sidney, who is an actress who uh, I'm very unfamiliar with, apart from her role as Juno in Beetlejuice. Oh, that's really surprising, actually. (laughs) I know. I was shocked when I read that. I'm like, what? (laughs) This is nuts. And she's telling a woman who's trying to get away with stealing a garment she talks another salesperson into no she's just looking for a price exchange and warns her not everybody's as kind as mr morris our boss jerome morris who is a boss who falls into the line of convicts can be reformed and they need a place to be reformed by having a responsible job which i'm gonna be honest i found that fucking admirable (laughs) That doesn't seem like the same kind of courtesy that would be extended today. There's so many fucking like barriers to a convict coming out of the prison system to get a job. And like, I feel like this is one of those guys who's just like, wow, is this one of the good billionaires? Question mark. (laughs) There's no such thing as a good one, but if there was, is this the guy? (laughs) Um, Are the legends true? Are the legends true? Are there really generous benefactors? (laughs) You mean, Jeff Bezos isn't the example? (laughs) You mean that space travel doesn't mean jack shit? (laughs) Um, And uh, we get the uh, we get a, a, a montage of other people in the store. And these are mainly criminals working in the store. And we get one of a guy trying to sell a rocking horse kind of device of a goose, I guess. To a little child, and this child will not fucking have it. <laughs> she, she's like, and she goes, but everybody, lo-, he he tries to sell her on it, and she's not having it. She's like, I think it's stupid. <laughs> and this guy gets in this little girl's, girl's face, and you're going to love the the goofy gander rocker, the goosey gander rocker, or I'm going to ring it around your neck. <laughs> and that's when I was like, ah, this is a Fritz Lang film. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, very, that's a good one. Malice towards children. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, I really felt that in order to really sell the point that this is a Fritz Lang production, I needed a menace towards a child. (laughs) This is the only way the American audience was going to fucking get it. Listen, Tarantino gets feet, Fritz Lang gets dead children. And so... (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Everybody gets a motif, man, all right? Fritz Lang likes killing children. I just like feet. Which of us is worse? (laughs) Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Um, and uh, we see we see an interaction with um, Morris's wife 
being sold a can opener that does everything but open cans. Yeah. <laughs> this is consumerism, consumerism at its finest. I, I just learned about the Elizabeth Holmes case last night. Yeah. Now I realize what it is. It's kind of like that Theranos machine. It does everything except the thing it's supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she rightfully asks her husband, why are you employing these people who can't sell a fucking thing? And... Jerome Morris is a guy who ignorantly or admirably is embracing the employee of these convicts. An example of his generosity and his belief is he notifies his secretary to have the former safe cracker who is selling that can opener to use it to open a safe. <laughs> he's a promote. He's an ad man merchandise. Like get, get the, get the word out there. This, this can opener will open your fucking safe. Um, and we, get another interaction with the gangsters and it's a big setup with uh, a very important person to my heart. Barton McLean playing Mickey Bain uh, comes up to uh, Warren Heimer as Gimpy. Listen, Bring I, out the Gimpy. <laughs> Gimpy's a great name. I don't, if there are any Gimpies in the listener pool, we love you. Gimpy is a fantastic name. There's nothing we wrong with you. the name Gimpy. No, no. There's not no shame in being named Gimpy. And in fact, this man er, owns the name Gimpy. He embraces it. Now, listen, you know? if, if, if there are any too. Gimpies listening, there are certain career paths that you should avoid. One of them being working with the mob. But uh, <laughs> that's... Because then you become a stereotype. Yeah, I mean, all the career... The mafia industry is really flooded with gimpies at the moment so you really don't the want mafia to... industry yeah the mafia industry is just really it's so oversaturated with gimpies at the moment at the moment and uh, it's not a meeting of the head families it's a board meeting yeah like, you know the shareholders all gather around they're like do we need another gimpy i don't know our, our, our quarterly profits on heroin are down we need to really push up the ad sales on 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 heroin i think you're underestimating how sophisticated the mafia industry is i'm, I'm not again again we respect you please don't hit us and <laughs> the i but i love the idea of i liked this interplay of mickey bain getting fitted for shoes and telling gimpy like have you talked to Joe? No, Joe don't want any part of this. No, no, no. You're going to get Joe or I'm going to get you. Like they, He's laying into him like you've got a job coming up. And we established that Mickey Bain is not a great guy. You know who is a great guy, though, Henry? Who? Barton McClain. Oh. <laughs> Barton fucking McClain. <laughs> I love him. He is Steve McBride in the Torchy Blaine films. The set-upon detective who deals with his better half, Glenda Farrell, playing the titular Torchy Blaine, as she, as a newspaper reporter, solves the mysteries that he, as a detective, cannot solve. It, he's just a wonderful comic foil. Here, though, he's a tough gangster, Ooh. and he's he's laying into it. But he's also clearly a coward, as we're going to find yeah. out later. Um, and we, we get our introduction to Joe, and he says, Listen, I'm telling you. This is a good racket, and I ought to know. There isn't a racket I haven't tried. Look at that grip. Mm, let me try it. <laughs> and we pull back on George Raft holding a racket, yeah. a tennis racket. That's a good joke. It's a good I gag. Like a good it's a good gag. Yeah, I, I like a good mislead. <laughs> I like that one. Like, uh, I'm always, I'll always refer back to 
uh, the great piggy bank robbery with Daffy Duck where he goes, I'm going to pin it on you, see? I'm going to pin it on you. And then it goes through the door and he's playing pin the tail on the donkey. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, George Raft, is, uh, as Joe Dennis, is selling this racket to a woman. And as he is walking the customer down to make the sale, he comes across Helen at the elevator and they hold hands. Ooh. Ooh. They're in love. Are they like each other at a little? That's you know? scandalous. Do you think a love story is going to happen between these two employees? <gasps> That's against uh, code. No, well, no, it's not. Oh, but she, she's going to say it is. Oh, she's going to say it is. Mm. How? Well, right now they're just friends, and right now Joe has hit the end of his probation. Hooray! Yay! He doesn't have to. He's. We're establishing him as a good guy. He's a convict reformed. This is a part of the gangster era as it had to exist in the in the code. You couldn't have them – you had to have them be a good guy in order to get away with the gangster imagery. And they have to like – you can't have him like fall from grace. You have to have him pay for his crimes in an even more severe way than the pre-code would allow. Like it had to be a little bit lighter and fluffy and less violent. And so part of this is a decision to subvert the gangster into convict reformed who may be tempted to go back into the lifestyle. This is a way to still do a crime movie. But what's interesting is that as these films go on in the Warner Brothers canon and even in the Paramount canon and other studios, they're incorporating more comedy because it softens the blow. And mob comedies... I think it really – I think this inspires a lot of mob-related comedies you'll see down the line because you can have a movie like Pritzi's Honor bring back the grit, but you're still maintaining a level of wackiness about it. Um, or, I mean, I don't know. I know there are like, – a movie like Bugsy is also inspired by a film like this too yeah. for obvious reasons that are to come. But we learned that Joe is a good guy. He's going. He's reformed, and he's going to go to California to make a fresh start, where nobody has to know that he's a criminal. That he can just, you know, that he's a former convict. Morris is sad to see him go, as is Helen, because they meet each other outside of the store, and she's idling this ex, uh, hour of ecstasy perfume, hour of ecstasy, which is like the most like. I don't know, like the the most bla like the most blase name for a perfume that I could come up with, apart from like, like scent, you know, <laughs> like just scent. Like that would be the most bland bland title I could come up with. Ecstasy, uh, hour of ecstasy comes pretty damn close to me. And they walk down the street, and we learned, we learned that Helen has kind of basically built him back up. And made him feel a little bit more comfortable with talking about his past. So she's really gotten to know him a little bit more. And he's felt comfortable with it. And I like this idea of this emotional support beam that he's found in his life. And they're going to go to the train station to see Joe off. But not before one last dance at a dance hall. And this is the this is a crime in the film that I saw. Is that first of all we see... Helen is hesitant to go in because it's technically against her parole. But we don't know that she's in parole yet because 
She has been hiding it from Joe. Now, I'm telling you guys this up front. I know. Henry, settle down. Settle down. Settle down. I just don't know if I can do this anymore. I, I, you know, I'm... I, calm down. Calm... Henry, calm down. Just I want you to calm down. Tell me what I need to know. Are you, are you are you really saddened by me withholding information and only using somebody's reaction to suggest that something is wrong? It's is just, that it, Henry? The, the language that you use automatically is just... Really getting to me. I understand that, Henry. Calm down. I'm I'm calming down. Rock, I'm calming down. Rock a bye, baby. Oh, that's the nice. <laughs> you like the idea of Fritz Lang calming you down? I like I like the idea of him just like cradling me to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. Now, someone clip that and use that whenever yeah. you need to go to sleep. And so yes. <laughs> Then the bow breaks, the crater will fall, and in the hall of the mountain king, balloon in the air. <laughs> Long, you're getting really bad at these. I know, I'm not, I'm not good with children. Good with Henry, though. He's very, very easy to please. Give him, give him angles, and he'll be set for life. <laughs> um... Now, but we get we do get the setup though that something is off about her. Something is off about her, and it is because that she is herself on parole. But she doesn't tell that to Joe, and we as the audience don't know right away either. So it's not like a Hitchcockian thing where it's not like you're setting it up in advance as we the audience know, but he doesn't know. So the suspense doesn't play into effect here just yet. But they go to the dance hall. The big crime that is committed is that George Raft is only shot from the waist up, and we don't see his dance moves. And I, for one think that's a cheat. I think Fritz Long cheated us as the audience because there's no dancing in this musical. There's no, <laughs> there's barely any like actual choreography, but the, the counterbalance to that is that this musical is very innovatively designed. Uh, Cause if you're going to do a musical, why not do it through allegory and metaphor? <laughs> and that even starts off with them sitting down to watch a singer and this singer singing the song the right guy for me and we cut to out of nowhere long just decided i'm gonna shoot something involving sailors at uh on port getting laid by hookers because that's what happens yeah <laughs> and it was it kind of took me aback when i first saw because i'm just like why are we doing this but if you're doing an elaborate musical number like, have you seen clips from these older musicals yeah. where it's like everything's yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of lavish yeah. and like there is metaphor stuck into it? He just decided to remove the stage bound element and make a story out of it that relates to the idea. Yeah. It's like if you were to do Chicago, the pop six squish, uh, he had it coming, the number he had yeah. it coming, and you were to show side footage, B roll footage of the actual thing happening, and instead it's done through interpretive dance. Yeah. Um, Regardless of how this and, ended up working out, it's very impressive the ambition behind it uh, and deciding to do that take on it. So Yeah, it's like it's it's strange because you feel cheated because you you're expecting musical, but you're you're not angry. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like you're not angry about it. You are just you're taken aback. And once you've settled into what the film is doing. It doesn't matter that you're not getting elaborate musical numbers. You're getting a Fritz Long musical. In in a way, instead of having dancers and a stage and bright lights, he's using cinema itself as the musical. 
He's using silent cinema to a certain respect to portray this. He does montage for the beginning with the cash registers and the thousands of things you can buy, which, by the way, a lot of the imagery in it plays into expressionism. So he's using his, using his expressionist route to flesh out these musical sequences. Um, and Joe, we see that he is a person who, despite how much he's reformed, he won't take lip from nobody because somebody tries to mack on Helen, um, which <laughs> there's a line in here that I didn't think ever existed as a pickup line and I don't think should ever exist ever again is uh, she's fending off the advances of this wacko by going like, no, uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm with somebody. Well, if you're sorry, why don't you leave them? I mean, that's the smoothest line. Yeah. <laughs> I've ever, it, it, that doesn't work. <laughs> this guy deserved to be punched. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking moron. I almost wish George Raft would have come in and said, like, that's just a bad pickup line. Bang. <laughs> Pop him in the face. Yeah. But no, but no, he uh he holds his temper back at first. They do the song, and then he comes back and he just decides to finish the fucking yeah. job. Um and they go to the bus. They're about to she's about to say goodbye to him. He gets on the bus, and then she stops it by saying, Joe, were you trying to ask me to marry you? Because if so, I say yes. <laughs> and he goes, stop the bus, stop the bus. And we get this crane shot of him leaving the bus, the bus leaving, and then pushing in on him. It's like way too epic yeah. for the movie they're making, but it looks so beautiful. It really is Fritz Lang going like, I need to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, None of this is fun for me. <laughs> None of it. The, you emasculated the gangsters. <laughs> You've put me in the middle of a rom-com. <laughs> I need something to give you. Yo, get that fucking crane over there right now and push in on his back. <laughs> you fucking heard me. Um, and they decide to get married in a quickie scenario. And Joe, because he doesn't know Helen is a convict, he thinks she is pure, holier than thou, a good girl. Mm-hmm. And that's what, one thing I want to talk about. The perception of Joe that Joe has towards a woman he would be attracted to. I love the fact that this film is an early attempt at dealing with, well, he's got a secret, but I've got a secret too. Would he love me for my secret? Mm-hmm. I wanted to know how that played for you because it seems like outdated, but it doesn't like really off put you what's well, it's it's, it's, ex- it's one of those like outdated things but it's also i mean it's still relatable like it's there's still there's elements of humanity to it as well that are still like a like a human condition kind of like i have a secret how do i like, how do i mm-hmm. live with the secret it's like it's still a very relatable concept even if it is an outdated form it's and i found it's a very interesting yeah i i very much enjoyed the actual plot line of the film and the structure of that uh, and yeah. that question that it asks. And, and from a rom-com standpoint, because yeah. like, we're, we're fans of rom-coms um, to an extent. And I know that you've, I, I know that within your writing, you've dealt with relationships and yeah. how they've worked. And I, I think that this is surprisingly well handled, yeah. especially considering that Krosna doesn't do the full script. The full script ends up being done by Virginia Van Up, 
um, who is a writer that I'm not fully familiar with, really. Um, she did Cover Girl um, in 1944, um, and uh, she was one of the few female producers in Hollywood at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, the others being Joe Harris, Joan Harrison and Harriet Parsons, hmm. who was the daughter of Luella... I'm going to ruin Citizen Kane's chances at success, Parsons. Oh. That's her, that's her full fucking name. Yeah. No, she worked for Hearst. So, you know, she saw the movie and she went to she went tattletale. Mr. Hearst, Mr. Hearst, yeah. they made a movie that made you a boo-boo. Me. Oh, that <laughs> yeah. one. Oh, Luella. She's been on Jack Benny's programs and those are episodes I don't like listening back to. Yeah. <laughs> Just like I can't sympathize with you at all. <laughs> um. But they go get married, and we get them entering the apartment in which Helen lives in. And this is an example of what a director does with what they're known for, for an entirely different purpose. Because he shoots this like a creepy scene. Mm. That the the shadows are, are the shadows are stark. Light is only coming from the source. He actually keeps relighting matches. <laughs> Which I always love that when the match goes out and you just got to relight it and you fade out the light. And they go up to the apartment and what could normally be a creepy expressionist situation turns into them trying to sneak in so that they're not heard by the landlady. And the door to the place opens. He opens the door and the camera just pushes in on those two about to enter. It's a shot that elevates an otherwise mundane moment. Yeah. That is the that is the difference between an assignment director who does what they're told and maybe adds a flourish or two, but not doesn't really have a distinctive style versus somebody with a style and says, "I'm fucking proud of it," and he's unafraid to push that camera where it needs to go, and I think that elevates everything about this film. It doesn't make it great, but it makes it more distinctive. He is making a much more distinctive film by comparison. And we get an interaction with her landlady who at first tells her to get the hell out. And then when she finds out they're married, she tells the next door neighbor to keep it down (laughs) rather than them. Um, Mrs. Levin's played by Vera Gordon uh, and Mr. Levin played by Egon Brecker. Um, One thing from a modern contextual note, she is playing a heavy Jewish stereotype. Uh, that Jewish landlady stereotype that is like you would hear this accent in a lot with um, uh, Minerva Pius playing um, uh, uh, Mrs. Nussbaum on uh, uh, Fred Allen's program and other caricatures of the era. She's such a lovable character, though, and she doesn't really the Jewish identity isn't really I don't think it's the butt of the joke. Um, Yeah, I'm sure it's. It's not the worst thing it could be. Uh, no, but it's no, not, no, it's let's not. Let's not try to... <laughs> let's not defend no, no, no. anything. <laughs> Her delivery and language, actually. You know, the more I'm, like, recalling stuff in my head, yeah, it's it's not great. It's it's very, uh, like, that 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 Yiddish delivery. Yeah. As, it's very... as someone who's not Jewish or Yiddish, I don't really feel comfortable being like I'm cool with it because obviously I am. But like, uh, I'm not. Co- I'm not cool with it either. I'm also aware that it's not. It almost seems like they don't vilify. Yeah. The character because of their identity. Yeah. 
Um, it's mainly a landlord landlady situation. Um, she's a great character. Yeah. I like the way she's written. Like she's very ca- caring to Helen, but yeah, she is a bit of a problem. So I guess I've moved from defending it. Well, to it's it's also I mean, I wish it was different. It's a, yeah, it's also one of those things though where it's like you know, it's the forties or sorry, yeah, uh, it's the forties. Yeah, is it, it, it the forties? Yeah. Uh, well, 1938. 30, yeah, but 38. It's, yeah. It's, it, 38. It's the 30s and 40s. It could have been we so about, much worse. <laughs> yeah, so. we, we, we talked about this. Uh, we, we've talked about this with um, uh, the outdated materials in M as well. Yeah. The, this isn't new territory. The year is 19, 1938. Jewish people had a bigger problem at the time. <laughs> so Yes, and they were being persecuted by our government as harbingers of of wartime of war propaganda before we were in a war yeah and we're dragging all those studio heads into fucking congressional hearings because they were instigating war with germany yeah as if that should never have happened yeah because you should always think of america first right henry right Right. I can't be on the record as saying that no, I support no. that no, even no, sarcastically. No, 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 like. no, yeah, even sarcastically, <laughs> it's a terrible idea. No, America first is bullshit. Um, what isn't bullshit? Helen and Joe are in love. Helen and Joe are in love, and we get our first reveal of Helen being on parole because she pulls out her parole card. We see it's not fully filled out. And she hides it in a stack of envelopes, which are presumably love letters. And she tells Joe to not tell anybody at the store that they're married. Because she says that Mr. Morris doesn't allow employees to get married or to be together. And Joe, rightfully so, is kind of surprised by this, going like, that doesn't seem like Mr. Morris. (laughs) That doesn't seem like my boss, who has been very kind and considerate towards my rehabilitation as a former criminal, like that he would be this narrow-minded or backwards. But she says, no, 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 that's that's what it is. Believe me, wink, that (laughs) that he does not want us married, wink. Um, Winkings to the audience, by the way, not to to him. And uh, they go on their little honeymoon, uh, and we get another instance of Mickey Bain amid their little honeymoon tour. I love how they do the honeymoon tour. He pulls out a bunch of pamphlets from a tour guide or from a from a t- travel agency because uh, he had cashed in his California ticket and says, uh, where do you want to go? And they settle on a Swedish pamphlet. And then it just goes to Swedish restaurant, <laughs> just Swedish restaurant. Nothing else, just Swedish restaurant. Um, and then they go to an, uh, an Italian one. And then they go to a Chinese one. And thankfully, thankfully, there is no stereotypes <laughs> compounded upon oh, yeah. in the Chinese restaurant. <laughs> no, with the moment that it flashed on like that they were in China, I got real concerned really quickly. Yeah, I was like, so. and you kind of, you hear a little bit of, the music flourish yeah. into a Chinese <laughs> motif that is very, we talked about it in uh, uh and Old Lace when they go on the ja- ja- the Chinese lady and it goes into that, you know, that like that, yeah. that stereotypical yeah. music. Thankfully that does not happen. They talk about instead about eating with chopsticks and <laughs> like they make a little joke. Like you get a little bit of Joe's charisma here in yeah. these scenes. Like he, you understand why somebody like Helen would fall in love with him. He's a very charming guy, very charming guy. Like, well, well, 
not only will he woo you, but he'll turn down every property handed to him that goes to Bogart instead. <laughs> Such a charming guy. <laughs> um, and uh, so he uh, he is confronted by Mickey at the restaurant, and he just he's trying to tell Mickey, "Leave me the fuck alone. I'm clean now." <laughs> and he goes like, "You'll come back. You should come out around Thanksgiving. Have a wonderful time. Thanksgiving." Okay, bye. <laughs> Mickey's good at just like coming in for a minute, interrupting your day for a second, and then leaving, which which leaves you in a state of anxiety. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's just really it's 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 like it's like if Samara it's like Samara from the Ring going like seven days. Okay, bye. <laughs> she doesn't bother to haunt anybody for the remainder of the movie. She just comes in and goes like six days. Later, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and we are we are given more of the domestic lifestyle of Joe and Helen, but we're also given a sense of Helen as a character and how she's worried that Joe wouldn't like her because she's a parolee and a former criminal. And I I like the fact that Helen's given this kind of dimension. It's not perfect. But it is one of those strange things about a woman feeling confident about herself to find a love that she wants and feeling unashamed of herself. And I think that's I want to I want to ask, like, how do you feel Sylvia Sidney stacks up here? Because I, I think that she's in a lot of ways a stronger performer than George Raft in this movie, hands down. Yeah, I mean. She was the character that I more so was excited to be. I mean, I'll not to like really compare the two of them in a way, but more. I mean, she was more exciting and more dynamic. I would say she has more dimensions. Yeah, Joe's got the two. Yeah, reformed gangster, reformed gangster. He's got charisma and charm, but he doesn't have the same dimension. Yeah, Helen has Helen has a confidence issue that she has to work around. On top of that, she has to keep up with her probation, um, which. She has to arrange with Mrs. Levin that if anybody comes by the house asking for me, they're from the store. Don't tell them that I'm married because she's concerned about Mr. Dayton, who is the man from the parole board. Um, And I think that that provides a lot more space for her to have worry and tension than George Raft, who really his ultimate dilemma is just saying no to drugs or in this case, just saying no to crime. Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, it's it's one of those it's one of those things where I wish that I almost wish Joe had more character to him, but I don't think it's needed. I think Helen's there's a reason why Sylvia Sidney's top build in here. She really our main character. Mm-hmm. I really think she's our main character, and Joe's kind of like a sideline that happens to be the lead. Like because his dilemma is so clear cut and dry, and hers is a lot more complex. Mm-hmm. And Joe starts to learn that there's cracks in this story because he sees that Mr. Morris is talking to a Mr. McTavish and asks about his wife. Um, And his wife works in glassware. So Joe confronts McTavish about this. And he says, like, I thought that Mr. Morris didn't allow employees to get married. And he goes like, you kidding? He brought us a hundred dollar icebox at our wedding. (laughs) That's when I just pictured like Joe just like waiting for a second, like son of a bitch, you didn't get me an icebox. Wait a minute, 
My wife's lying to me. <laughs> oh, God, that one icebox is going to destroy so many marriages. Oh, so many marriages. So many marriages. If you don't get one, you're fucked. If you're in a relationship and you don't have an icebox, get fucked. Frankly, if you're in a relationship and you don't have an icebox, you're not in a relationship. <laughs> you're not one. In, no, 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 no. You, you're you're living a lie. Yeah. Is what you're living. Um, and Mickey comes again around to the department to tell him about a job. He's got a job on Thanksgiving. Um, and Joe then lays into a little bit of his history as to why he is reluctant to ever join up with these guys again. And it really boils down to Mickey is a guy who will let others take the fall for him. He has the line, I always had the brass and you always had the quick getaway. So it's not just a matter of, I want to reform. It's a matter of Mickey fucked him over. So it is one of those, like, you have to imagine that like, if you if you're a, if you're a reformed gangster and you've got the opportunity to get back in the game but you were betrayed by him, of course you wouldn't want to deal with this motherfucker. And it's reasonable to suspect that it would take a lot to wear you down. And unfortunately, the thing that will wear Joe down is the idea of his wife lying to him. And he Helen even tries to reassure him again that like, well, Mr. McTavish is I I wrote this I wrote this down. McTavish's marriage to Helen is very easily resolved. She just goes like, she's McTavish. McTavish is Morris's wife's relative. So that's why they're able to get married. Cause you've got to make an exception for the boss. Oh, of course. She had to reach. She had to reach a little bit to get there. But once she gets there, he buys it. He, he buys it. Hook, line and sinker. Like, Oh, Oh well, yeah, of course that makes sense. You know, uh, I, I, I mean, nepotism is just a wonderful institution that everybody should adhere to and everybody should respect. Some people <laughs> like to view it as nepotism is a synonym for hard work, uh, and you know, especially <laughs> in the forties. Hey, you know, if I owned a store and I told my employees they couldn't get married, but one of them was related to my wife, I have to make an exception. What, what could I do, Helen? You're right. I love you so much. It's uh, about we who get you crazy. know. I must be crazy. And, you go, and she goes, we get crazy about each other. It isn't you and it isn't me. It's you and me. And we have a title. Woo! Hey. Congratulations, yeah, we everyone. We did it. We did it. We got to the title. Yes, yes. I... I felt as long as I was doing something that really, really, really wasn't up my alley that I wanted to just be as obvious as possible. And I and I told Virginia, I said, you put a line in there that gives us the title of this film. It's like it's like any good film. You know, you 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 the only reason Die Hard is not a good movie is because it doesn't say the word man, I'm dying hard in here. And, then, and see, it, it helps the audience get invested in, like, that's why Lethal Weapon is better. Because Lethal Weapon says we'd have to register it as a Lethal Weapon. And then we go, we have the title. There we go. Um, yeah. It's it's very on the nose. I was like, this is this is a little corny. <laughs> like a this little is what too movies corny. are made for, is this moment Movie right magic. Here. <laughs> yeah. I still love that gag in Family Guy when they talk about, like, I'm telling you, this is going to turn into Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Oh, that's why they call it that. <laughs> um. And uh, uh, Mickey uh, approaches Gimpy at Christmas time this time. Our favorite character. Uh, yeah. Oh, God. Well, I think it's, the timeline's uncertain for me because is this a situation 
Do you think in the 30s they were advertising for Christmas as early as Thanksgiving like they do now? Because he keeps saying the job's going to happen on Thanksgiving. Um, no. But we see Christmas decorations all over that store. I have no way of knowing, but I want to say I, n- no. No, neither do I. <laughs> That's why I'm just like... I want to say that like, the Christmas commercialism getting like hyper big had to have come after World War II. Like, it had to be. Like when we were buying everything, that had to have been after World War II. But what if, Henry? What if? What if? What if I, Fritz Lang, innovated Christmas being sold as early as Thanksgiving? Oh my god! What if I did that? Oh my god! Yeah. You know, you know when you worked at that. You know when you worked at that Target that one time, and yeah. you heard nothing but Christmas music from the beginning of November to the end of December. I do remember that. That was me. Oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> that was me. I am the reason that you have a headache all throughout the holidays. Oh <laughs> It's crazy. Fuck you, Fritz Long. <laughs> Can't believe you've done this to us. God, I've ruined the culture. You're welcome. <laughs> Flies away. <laughs> Flies away like Peter Pan. Um, um, and uh, we, but he he comes to Gimpy and approaches him and insists that he bring Joe along to a gathering of the gangsters, a gaggle of gangsters, if you will. And they're at this empty bar, and we get a replication of that table conversation scene from M. I was right, which I didn't spot at first, but then I thought back to the, all the all the townspeople oh, yeah, in right. the bar acu- yeah, accusing yeah. each other of the crime. They're doing this, but instead they're reminiscing about jail. <laughs> <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> I wrote this down. I wrote this down because I had to kind of make sense of it. Like cut to an empty bar, Mickey and his crew awaiting uh an interesting chat with the crew discussing what it's like to be on the outside and the positives and negatives of jail. Oddly, they talk of their love for the routine of the joint and sneaking around it. And story-wise, it makes sense because they're looking for routine. And the the crime lifestyle isn't really providing routine for them, but jail structure is what they're looking for. And that's when we get the best musical number of the movie, which starts in toxing <laughs> and then goes into singing. And then jo- jo- Raft joins in on this. <laughs> Hi, Hiya, gang. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Being around with all you guys. Hi, Joe. Seeing the same old faces. Hi, Joe. Takes me back to the old days. Hi, Joe. Stick with the mob. And I feel like I'm part of the mob again. Stick with the mob. Stick with the mob. Though I've gone straight and gotten a job. The heiress. Stick with the mob. Still, I seem to belong with the mob again. Once you're in the zone, escape unless you let them hang and break. Think of the big house once again. Hell, you were our buddy then. You're part of the mob. You belong to the mob. And it's great to watch him get involved in it. But you see a montage of all these gangsters talking, and then they cut into a jail. And they recreate what it's like when one of the inmates tries to escape. They talk about the new fish. It's all the things that I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Frank Darabont saw this and go like, say, what if this but serious? <laughs> and that's the Shawshank Redemption because it reminds me of like all the stories they talk about in Shawshank Redemption. Like the, the, the new fish story and the idea of an escape. And it's all done with expressionism. He's using very simple 
jail sets. Very, very simple. The most elaborate it gets is the hallways, and he uses shadows for the remainder of the for the remainder of those shots in order to portray their vague recollections, like their memory. Like you know how your memory like floats and it, it, not everything's fully distinct. Mm-hmm. That's what they're getting out of it, and we get Joe basically learning about the job that's going to be pulled on Thanksgiving, and it's going to be pulled at Morris's store. <gasps> but that's all of these criminals, all of these convicts, work for Morris. He was good to them. Oh my god! But he's making all the money, and we're making none. See? <laughs> Yeah, I hate communists. Crime doesn't. Yeah, I... <laughs> Did you just go gangsters, communists. <laughs> They're capitalists. Very, very pro communist <laughs> mafia podcast. <laughs> pro communist, pro mafia. Pro podcast. Ma- or pro everything. Two, <laughs> two things that are two things that are very against each other. Listen, all, the, all those communist mafia people, we were very pro. <laughs> We're very pro. We're pro everything. Podcast. Yeah, everyone's okay on in our book. So except for except for pro life, that's just fucking. Oh, and stupid. Nazis. We've, we've be, established we're anti Nazi as well. Oh yeah, like, anti Nazis and anti pro life. We're pro choice and fuck Nazis. Yeah. that's that's what we're Yo, that's what we're establishing. That. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Saved us. Not. <laughs> um. No, you're. But no, we we get Joe trying to talk him out of the job. And that's when the boys reveal, uh-oh, your wife's a parolee. Oh, no, the reveal. Yeah. And Joe, Joe has been very good up to this point because he has had to stop himself from going from going to places that he shouldn't be going. To the point where I had a note from back a little bit. When he leaves, they had a Helen and him have a squabble over the love letters that she carries, where she's hiding the parole card. She plays it off as former lovers, and she plays off a visit from another man as a former lover or an old friend. And Joe is getting jealous because of the fact that she talks to other men, um, which toxic environment. You yeah. know, you could talk to your ex if you want. That's your prerogative. It's not ours. Um, but I had a, a note to bring up into this, which is um, th- this whole idea of Lang trying to exercise his camera skills as best as he can. It's exemplified in imagery um, as in the moment when Joe is walking in the rain to be halted by a stop sign as if to say, don't give up, Joe, um, only to know that his fate will not must not interfere with the decision in its executed state. But... Then it goes to go. Joe is going to go no go no matter what in his own direction. He's going to do whatever he's wanted to do. Fate's not going to fully intervene with that. Joe himself is driven oddly by non-existent jealousy that feels at odds with his character's attempting reform. So the imagery plays to a low ebb, which Lang probably realizes. This is for him to have what he can. So though this imagery and all these like metaphoric metaphoric like symbols. Are are really the only way that Lang can play in the sandbox of this Brechtian concept of crime doesn't pay. It's it's interesting to watch somebody do that, and I I feel like directors who come from a stronger style still do this today. Like 
if a distinctive director makes a bigger budget film, they will bring what they can from their style into the proceedings. Yeah. Um, a good example would be James Gunn. James Gunn is known for dirty fucking movies. Yeah. Dirty, great fucking movies. Yeah. And when he did Guardians of the Galaxy, he took that raunchy humor and repositioned it yeah. for a different purpose. And I think that directors who come from another country specifically will find a way to heighten through imagery or through execution something that may be on the low ebb to them. Alfonso Cuaron doing the third Harry Potter movie is a great example of yeah. this. Those movies had a Chris Columbus feel to them. Alfonso Cuaron brought style to Harry Potter. Yeah. And he did it with his own use of imagery that he brought to Iumama Tambien. Mm-hmm. I hope I said that right. I'm, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that name. Uh, it's Alfonso Cuaron. You can kill me later in my sleep if you want. Um, uh, we leave the doors unlocked. In, so Yeah. Or you can throw me into space with Sandra Bullock. Ooh. I really don't care. You. Gravity Throw too. me into space with George Clooney. No, George Clooney. George Clooney is a little creepy in that movie for me. <laughs> I love George Clooney. It's the one performance where I'm like, you're a little bit of a creep. Yeah, but he ends up dead, doesn't he? <laughs> like, spoilers for a decade old movie. Um, <laughs> spoilers for the winner of Best Director at the 2013 Oscars. Yeah. Um, this film that you've probably seen at some point because somebody told you it's Sandra Bullock and she's lost in space. Blah. Um, and, uh, so they revealed to him that she's a parolee and then that's when everything really unravels. Now we know that it's not so much that he's in control of this. He's letting his emotions run rampant. So my note that I made initially about like how he won't be motivated by an outside force, it's all coming internally it's his internal emotions that are swaying him. And when a piece of information comes along, no stop sign in the world is going to stop him from feeling the way he's going to feel. And now he, he refuses to fully believe it and gets into a fight and a huge fist of brawl <laughs> uh, in this bar that has him leaving. And he gets back to the apartment where Helen is baking a cake for Joe when he comes and he inquires about how long she's been there um, uh, at the store and then leaves frustrated when it's confirmed for him. Like, yeah, this is true. She's a parolee. Um, and then we cut back to Mickey on his own and he's retaining a lawyer to ensure that he'll be protected in court and that nobody else will get protection. Oh. This skeezy motherfucker. Mm-mm-mm. Barton McLean, how dare you? Ooh, thank God you're going to become a detective and solve mysteries with Torchy. Otherwise, <laughs> I'd hate you forever. Um, and uh, we get a montage of folks being contacted and set up. Um, and Gimpy starts to have second thoughts about the job. Gimpy is the gangster with a heart of gold in this movie. He is he is the one who realizes there would be a big mistake. Meanwhile... An ominous threat comes Mickey's way. That seems like it should be bigger in the plot. That like we should establish this movie doesn't really adhere to a established mafia family. Like this isn't like Goodfellas where you have a touring scene where it goes like this is John, this is this is Jimmy two times, and this is Polly. Polly works slow, but he you know he didn't have to move at all. Like that that scene doesn't happen. We just know that somebody comes and tells Mickey to lay off the job. Because the big shot doesn't like him. The big shot, 
Who's the big shot? We never see him. Yeah. <laughs> the big shot. It'd be great if it turned out it was just Jimmy Cagney going like, I'm going to take you for a ride. <laughs> that would have been a good twist. Oh, <laughs> that would have been a great twist. It's like when you like you hear about like the mysterious figure in the background and it turns out it's a big, huge celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's been this way this whole time. Yeah. That's I- Daniel Craig over there. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect you disobeyed me. <laughs> Flips a coin. <laughs> then solves a mystery, even though he looks like a blumbering fool until he says one line that makes you realize he's a genius this whole time. Hmm. Uh, and Gimpy disguises his voice over the phone to talk to, uh, uh, to, to tell Helen to keep Joe at home that night. And then she recognizes Gimpy's voice and she realizes that a job's about to be pulled. Uh, and Helen goes to warn Morris. And Helen's... Helen's reached her fucking limit with Joe and his jealousy and his anger because she 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 says that she's sorry to him in in their apartment one night before he goes out to leave and get ready for the job. Like, I, 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 I didn't think you'd want me if you knew what I was. And we see this shot of Helen just desperately sad. And let's talk. Let's talk about that for a second. This idea of her. Having like feeling so heartbroken that she lied to him, but ha- even more heartbroken about the way she's treating him because of this revelation, because she didn't she didn't move away from him when she knew his background. So she almost feels like he should reciprocate that. It's like a strong little concept to feel in there. It's one that I just wasn't expecting this emotional heartbreak moment to happen in the film. It's why she's like, I know why you're compelled by her henry because she is the she is the the best character in the movie hands down um and it doesn't feel disingenuous it feels earned this heartbreak feels earned and so she goes to warn mr morris um and we see her asking the hypothetical removal of a toxic source in somebody's life she's ready to cut the cancer out as it were and i don't think you could say that this innovates stronger stories about cutting toxic people out of your life. But would you say that this is pretty interesting to see out of a fucking 38 movie? 30s movie. I mean, yeah. Yeah, like for its time. Let's let's we're putting ourselves in this yeah. time. This is this is kind of a, a a positive progressive story idea stuck in here. Yeah. It feels like the only way you get away with that is in a comedy. In a gangster drama, it would just be like, "Well, of course you'd turn him in. He's ki- committing a crime." But yeah. we have been entrenched in their romance story for so long. That's how it's earned emotionally. And the break-in's about to commence, and we get... Remember when we were talking about the table imagery and M? We get more M imagery here. Mm-hmm. That break-in almost felt shot for shot like a remake of the gangsters led by uh, led by Safecracker. That's a, that's a good point. Being, yeah, being uh, breaking into the building to look for the killer. Yeah. Like he is bringing things he did before into the into his American films, and I'm I don't know if M was such a big splash in America that people would remember it. So I don't think anybody would latch on to that right no. away. Um, if anything, they'd be latching on to Fury, which is the film that he first really broke out yeah. with in America. Here, he's just bringing tricks that people may or may not know, but they're going to work for this film. Um, and they're about to do the job when, oh, no, the lights go up. Guards are surrounding them. Oh, no. Mr. Morris comes out and goes, 
you motherfuckers. He doesn't say that. <laughs> uh, but he, he, he realizes, like, I've been a fucking idiot trusting a <laughs> bunch of cons to work in my store. My wife was right. She'll never let me let it down. <laughs> uh, and Morris is, like, he resolves to just, he was going to toss them back in jail. But Helen has reasoned with him to spare them. And he makes the decision, I'm going to leave you in Helen's hands. She's going to give you a lecture. And then you're all going to go. And I expect you back in this fucking store at 8 o'clock. Not a minute after. And this is when we get the crime does not pay message. The most literal, literal crime does not pay scene in a movie ever. I mean, ever. <laughs> yeah. This scene, I want to start off with a quote by Long. Because, let me try to, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Because I've said, obviously, that he's bored throughout this entire thing. Yeah. This is him just kind of throwing his hands in the air and giving up. Yeah. This is what he said in the series of interviews. He says, I don't think you and me is a good picture. It was, I think deservedly, my first real flop. I made it probably a little under the influence of my friend Bertolt Breck, who had created a style in the theater in which he called Lerstuk, meaning a play that teaches you something. And I wanted to make a didactic picture teaching the audience that crime doesn't pay, which is a lie because crime pays very well. <laughs> The message was spelled out the at the end by Sylvia Sidney on a blackboard on a blackboard to a classroom of crooks. So he's not being figurative; he's being literal because she goes into a blackboard lecture about <laughs> crime not paying, and you better believe that I, who have translated other criminal statistics from M would write down the formula <laughs> that she writes out for these criminals. She writes it out on a chalkboard. The job was supposed to pay $30,000, 15% of which they'd get after going to the fence. Cause you got to hawk the material. You can't just, can't yeah. just take that stuff and sell it out right raw. You got, it filters through a fence and a thousand dollars would go for get, go for the getaway car plus 500 for the sale of it. So that's $500 that they have. Um, outside of that, but they've lost another 500 Three trucks at $200, that's $600 they add to it. Two stockroom men to pay off at $50, that's $100 uh, total. Three watchmen at $100, that's $300. Eight getaway tickets at $300. And a lawyer retained at $1,000, that's $1,700 that they've spent. And that means they're going to have, uh, and then they give 566 of that to Mickey. After all that has been removed and they have 1700 they give 566 to Mickey, who gets a split. They are left with $1,133.44 to split among 10, and that means they each get $113.30. Crime does not pay, Henry. Crime does, does not. not pay. It does not. I have, I have always just taken it for granted that crime doesn't pay. You don't want to go to jail. It's not a good lifestyle to lead. I've never seen it laid out by math before. <laughs> Listen. They brought the evidence. 
They they, they yeah, made a she... claim. They backed it up with evidence. There's nothing we can do. This is what this, that's how it works. Hold on, let me check. Um, yeah, Politico. Um, the truthometer on Politico is it's 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 good. It's good. It's listen. Good. The, I'm the I'm sorry. Pro, I'm sorry, pro crime people, but it just this isn't a debate anymore. Pro crime. It's it's not a sustainable <laughs> viewpoint. What was that, Henry? What did you say? Are you trying to tell the mafia that our business Absol- is illegitimate? Absolutely not. Abs- I'm, like we established, very pro-mafia, very pro-communism, that, 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 but that, we are not that, pro. <laughs> Listen, I don't have anything against right. crime. I'm just going to say, statistically yeah, speaking, right. it says that it doesn't pay. I am sorry, that's, Mr. That's, mafia. That's, that's why they call you Mumbles around the block here. Yeah, Mumbles mumble Henry, that's around. me. <laughs> mumble and stumble, because you also stumble over your words. I do, I stumble <laughs> over my words. I'm always saying things I don't know what to do. <laughs> you better keep your fucking nose clean. <laughs> I saw you wiping it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Polly and Goodfellas. Like, I want you to cut the shit. <laughs> hmm. I don't care if you stick it up your own nose. I don't want you to stick it up other people's noses. <laughs> um, um, so then... Uh, as this is happening, Mickey's waiting in the getaway car, and uh, the the people who are uh, being paid by the big shot come in and take him for a ride. <laughs> and Mickey's just driven, driven off. It's later revealed that he's slain along with two other people in a big gangland slaughter. <laughs> yeah, but you know. Because like... of course he would. Yep, uh, Mickey, you, you shouldn't have fucked. You know what you shouldn't have done, Mickey? been very bad at menacing people with glib sentences about thanksgiving and come on you'd be great later dude and like you know like that's why <laughs> that they really killed thing. you he doesn't like you because you're not good at your fucking job yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and then the guys decide to reform they all decide we're gonna reform it's good we, 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 we've seen the era of our ways helen and helen walks off pretty resolved that she's gonna leave joe which i agree <laughs> Joe's been an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and he needs to pay for the crime of breaking her heart. <gasps> you see, you see how this works? He was guilty of a crime this whole time. Love. The guilt of heartbreak. Love. He was guilty of love and heartbreak. And <laughs> this is not this 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 is stretching. And this is why Lang says going like this is fucking stupid. <laughs> Wait, wait, are you serious, Virginia? He's guilty of breaking her heart. That's, that's, that's terrible. Why did I agree? To, was I high when I signed on? I should have had the right to refuse this somehow. I wouldn't mind getting suspended. <laughs> I don't. I don't mind. It would have been a nice like couple of weeks in Malibu that I could just relax. But no, I had to agree to this. <laughs> And this is the price you pay, Lang. This is the price you pay for making stupid decisions without thinking it through. <laughs> Do you think George Lucas was trying to figure out a way to kill off Padme? And then there's like, how am I going to do how? And then this movie came on in the background is like, that, that's, that's what I'm going to do. So oh, I'm never going to figure it out. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm just going to prime TCM. Oh, Fritz Long movie from America. That sounds good. Say. No one liked this movie. I can rip this one off. She didn't die of a broken heart, but she came close. Say. <laughs> uh, I'm going to make this into a the best of the prequels somehow. Ah, <laughs> uh, Fritz Lang. Yes, yes. I I think I made Star Wars better. 
Listen, listen, we're pro pro mafia, pro communism, pro prequel. We will we're we're, we're fans of it all. So. Would, would you just say that I am the reason that Revenge of the Sith even fucking works? Listen to to whatever you want. I don't even care. <laughs> so I I also influenced George that he should kill those younglings in that very dark scene in Revenge of the Sith. Hey, like, like, it's all come back around. <laughs> oh my God, George Lucas really took a lot from M and you and me. Two very disparate movies. It's a weird double feature um, day in uh, 2001. Oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do that double feature and then cap it off with a triple film of Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. None of the other Star Wars movies, just Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> um, and uh, we get that Helen's going to leave her. Joe is left at the store. And he notices the hour of ecstasy. A callback. A callback. Which Lang goes like, yes, of course I would bring it back. Why am I here? And, <laughs> and he goes to take the bottle and removes the price tag. But then he realizes, what am I doing? And he grabs the price tag. And in the most triumphant music I have ever heard in my fucking life, <laughs> he pays for the bottle of perfume. Oh. And it's lucky that he had that exact change in his pocket. <laughs> he had it right to the number. It's 1538. I think it was like, so he pulled out the wad and he had the 38 cents there. And, uh, he goes back there, but Helen notices that he's coming up the stairs as she's about to leave, hides around a corner, kind of like Leo Bloom and the producers just comes up and sneaks around a corner and then goes out the other way. He gets the note and he sit, he reads the note and it's really tender and heartfelt. It's like one of those good insert notes of just like, I'm so sorry that I broke your heart, but this is for the best, etc. Like, you're breaking my heart too. And um, uh, uh, I'm sorry uh, that you turned to the Sith instead of the Jedi, and etc. You know, like that's, that's basically what happens. And Joe goes to Dayton, the parole man, to find out. And Dayton says, not only... Not only is she left, uh, not only is she left me and and t- finished her parole, but she doesn't want anyone to know where she is. But that their marriage, and also that their marriage was never legal. And then that's when Dayton brings up a big point that I've managed to keep from you guys this whole time, which is, um, she don't want to know any anybody to know about her or the baby. <gasps> the baby. Joe was gonna have a child this whole time. God damn it, George Raft. You really screwed the pooch this time. <laughs> it's you and me and the baby. You and me and the baby makes three. <gasps> no, no, I will not make that fucking sequel. You get it out of my fucking hand right now. <laughs> Pulls out a sword. Back, back. <laughs> I would love it if he had made the sequel and it's about the baby turning to crap. <laughs> Oh, it would be great. <laughs> yeah, baby gangster. Oh, God. Big, baby, baby gangster sounds big like boy. a really great 1992 movie. <laughs> and so... <laughs> what is it? Uh, look who's talking, look who's talking to, and look who's talking for the mob. Yeah. Who are you talking to? <laughs> oh, who are you talking to? Yes, there you go. Who are you talking to? John Travolta plays a dual role. He plays the father, and he plays Chili Palmer oh, from Get Shorty. Wow, it's yeah, a crossover. It's an Before it's a no went, way home style film, but with all of your favorite John Travolta characters. 
<laughs> it's an Elmore letter. Look who's talking crossover universe. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Keaton is also in there as the ATF agent Ray Nicolette. Because <laughs> if anybody doesn't know, he played the same character you played in Jackie Brown and out of sight. Mm-hmm. Anyway, watch those two movies. They're great. Um, and watch this film, which is about to end because Joe goes to the other criminals and he pleads for their help. And they say, like, we'll help you find him, old friend, because we're reformed and whatnot. We're criminals. And we look out for each other. We look out for each other. We we, we, uh, we may be bad guys, but that doesn't mean we're bad guys. Yeah. Which is a line that somebody's going to steal for a Disney movie someday. No, I mean, le- <laughs> hey, fucking next month, The Bad Guys, new production from DreamWorks is coming out, and I'm fairly certain that's an actual line in the trailer for that movie. So, We may be bad guys. More than a feeling, but we're not bad guys. Yeah, exactly. More than a feeling. When it wins Best Animated Film at the Oscars in tw- next year, then, you know. You well, they owe a makeup award. They mo- owe a makeup reward for not giving it to Boss Baby. Well, of year. course, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's just unfair, and so. But in in this, I do want to talk about this fact that we end the move the way the movie ends. Everybody reforms. This is another example of it. Like you had to make this kind of goofy in order to get this past the censors. Yeah, and I, I wonder if this is a situation where a gangster film of this nature is a good thing because then it when the grittier ones return we were we're we're glad that that thing's back so it's almost like setting up disappointments so that you get a blossoming return with angels with dirty faces or even white heat like i don't know like i mean and and also there's nothing wrong with humor being in a gangster movie i think humor just transitioned to intertwine with the dark Mm -hmm. because public enemy and little caesar have funny moments but they're not laugh out loud riots for all that I do not like about certain people who make comments about Goodfellas being a fun hangout movie, that movie's pretty fucking funny. Yeah. <laughs> that movie is very darkly funny. The Irishman is funny in places, especially when Al Pacino goes, I'm sitting in a room in full of fucking idiots. God, I can't wait to be at a party. motherfuckers! I can't wait yeah. to be at a party and be like, do you guys have a good hangout movie you guys want to put on? Yeah. The Irishman. Let's just hang out with a bunch of old mafia types. Drink every time you hear in the still of the night. Drink every time you think you notice the CGI. Drink every time you're like, wait, Ray Romano is older than Robert De Niro? Drink every time you go, wait, Ray Romano's in this movie? Yeah. Drink every time. Oh, you actually take a full swig of the bottle when you realize that Don Rickles isn't in this movie and it's sad and you want to cry. <laughs> Get another bottle when you're like, there's how much left? <laughs> so, <laughs> And then, to top it all off, chug an entire keg when you see regret on De Niro's face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, drink responsibly. But do all those things as well. So you could actually—I just thought about—you could do a drinking game with you and me. Yeah. And I'm not. Uh, full disclosure: I'm I'm coming up on four years sober. I'm not like gonna do this. Maybe yeah. I'll do it with soda pop or something. Yeah. But you could drink every time you see expressionist imagery, mm-hmm. which is you'd get a good three a good or amount. four yeah. shots in. Yeah. Um, you'd get uh, a drink every time Joe talks about how he'd never be accepted as a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, by, by a lover or um, or by society. Uh-huh. You could take a shot every time 
Helen is hesitant to tell Joe who he is. Mm-hmm. You can have a shot every time that Helen tries to hide the parole information. Uh, you can have a shot every time Mickey threatens Joe or tries to coax Joe. Well, I don't know um, if we need to be having this many shots. but you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm trying to make this a, a fun evening for all y'all that still party. Well, I also don't want to really die, like... though. Like... Yeah. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Start with beer and then work your way up by the end of the week. I'm very defensive of, you know, any movie, really. However, I don't think this should be the one you died seeing, so. <laughs> that was how I actually died, Henry. I rewatched you and me at a retrospective and I was like, well, time to go. I mean, <laughs> me too. Oh, <laughs> uh, you up here too? Ah, oh, awesome. We can, we can hang out and do stuff. Oh, nice. Yes, I, I, I always hoped my death would be this um this entertaining hanging out with a millennial <laughs> and um we get the end then gimpy saves the fucking day dude i love gimpy i love him he saves the day because he goes hey i was thinking if a woman is pregnant where do you think she'd be <laughs> the hospital And they go like, well, why didn't we? There's a lot of like, they don't do it, but they should have gone like, a doy. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Just finish this picture. I want to go fucking home. (laughs) Not back to Germany. I meant back to my condo or wherever I'm living in Hollywood. (laughs) That is. (laughs) And uh, they go to the hospital and uh, they're in the waiting room and uh, the nurse calls out Mr. Dennis and then all the gangsters stand up. And it's kind of cute. And he goes, it's a boy, and your wife wants to see you. And um, they reconcile. He gives her the gift, the perfume. They're in love again. They're going to make it work. And this time they're going to get actually married. Oh. And so we cut to a wedding scene, because we got to have a nice wedding at the end of this. And they get actually married this time. And then Gimpy comes in with their kid and goes like, well, I figured he ought to know what's going on. And then we get the closing credits. If it's Lang production, I guess, of sorts. Wow. Now, here's the thing. We kind of make... I, I was making fun of this movie a little bit in places because it's kind of an easy punching bag. I love the movie, though. I do. Yeah, it's not... I, think a, it's it's, a very cute... I don't think it's by any means a bad movie. No. It's it's just... It's a little like... I think this is a matter of expectation. Yeah. It's very hard as a director to shift gears and do something completely different. It's why Mel Brooks took his name off of producing films like The Elephant Man and The Fly. Yeah. Because he knew that people would expect something that they weren't going to get. Um, or you make the more bold transition. Like Kevin Smith did that by going from cop-out to red state. Yeah. The big fucking shift. And I think that what's interesting about Long is, is that he he did do several different types of films. He did romantic films. He did films that were funny. He did different concepts. I feel like screwball comedy is not his forte. Yeah. I feel like that. And I, I, I I don't know if he made any more like this that I could explore, but this seems to me like an ill fit. And I, I would have to imagine that the other film that he did with Sylvia Sidney would be in this vein of some sort. Like, uh, you only live once. And uh, like it's or no, it's no, it's a crime drama film because I'm looking it up now and it's no, because he he was doing early film noir here. So this is just a huge fucking shift. Yeah. 
And I respect. I feel it. like I I do too. Again, like it's not a director is able to change gears if they want to. It's just that Lang's style is so definitive that our expectation can't live up to what this film is. Having said that, when I heard the word comedy in the read the word comedy in the description, my reaction was this can't go well. Yeah. And then I was surprised that it did go well. Um, unfortunately it did not go well for Lang. Um, as he said, in that interview, it was my first flop and deservedly so. Um, and really from there, this is this is the thing that I found interesting. And I'm going to share this with you. This comes from Variety. So we hear about deals being made all the time in Hollywood like that don't work out studio-wise and whatnot. And for this one... It's right here. You can see the thing right here. Yeah. So after this film, Lang leaves Paramount. From Variety on January 26, 1939, he says, Fritz Lang, under one under year contract, leaves Paramount at its expiration March 15th. Lang made one picture under the deal, You and Me starring George Raft. So he didn't even want to deal with Paramount anymore yeah. if this is what they were going to give him. And I'm trying to think of a good example of a, stu- a, a director who does a film for one studio and has such a terrible experience that they leave. And the, uh, if anything, it seems like people most most often than not stick with their studio until something terrible happens. Yeah. Um. Now, like, I. I I mean, like Quentin Tarantino leaving the Weinstein Company after the revelations of Harvey came out. Yeah. That makes perfect fucking sense. Yeah. But I'm not thinking of a director that leaves a studio out of that kind of frustration. Maybe stars. Oh, actually, well, like, you know what? Like stars Maybe. happen because you have like all like like the Justice League controversies and like that kind of thing. Uh, but like directing is so much rarer because it's it's a pretty bold move for a director to be like, I'm done with this entire studio. And so, well, well didn't didn't J.J. Abrams do a new deal with Bad Robot uh, on Bad Robot's behalf for Warner Brothers or something? Or well, I was gonna say like he, maybe, yeah. but because the the closest equivalent is probably when HBO Max announced they're gonna do their whole like yearly uh, like releasing things, and a lot of directors came forward and said, "I'm not gonna work with Warner Brothers anymore." Uh, Christopher Nolan, that's right. Thank yeah. you, thank you for bringing that up. Christopher Nolan went over to Universal. Yeah. Because of the way Tenet was handled. Yeah. And, well, at that and the decision to do the VFD It was a one-two punch, so. Yeah. But rarely, I don't think it's a matter of the the studio demanding that you do a different genre. Because the studio is not really going to push a genre on you anymore. They can relegate you to that genre. Yeah. um, And typecast you as a director for what they'll approve of and greenlight. Mm -hmm. But... You know, like Edgar Wright transitioning from the world's end to Baby Driver. You know, that's a bit of a shift. Yeah. So he goes to a different studio. He's not doing that at, at Focus Features. Yeah. He's doing that at TriStar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes over to, um, I think it was Focus or Universal that put out um, Last Night in Soho. Um, yeah. So he, 
those are types of shifts that happen, but rarely is it because the director is dissatisfied with the kind of work that he gives. You do see examples of it in Golden Age Hollywood with producers, too. And Michael Curtiz himself left Warner Brothers at a certain point to just start stuff of his own. Same with Hal Wallace, who was frustrated after uh, Warner, Jack Warner grabbed that Oscar for Casablanca out of his hands uh, before he could go up on stage. So this is this is an interesting breaking point where Long is one of those people who's the first to just be like, I'm not going to stick around here. And Hitchcock, Hitchcock was under contract to Selznick, and as soon as he could get out, he got out. He did not want to stick around with Selznick the same way. He was relying on being loaned out by Selznick to other studios to do other things that he wanted to do. Because again, Selznick was a little bit more controlling around the story and that's at odds with Hitchcock wanting to do what he does. Um, this film kind of relegates itself to history as a result because it's, it's not a film that would come to mind when you think of Fritz Long and not even George Raft. I, I, Each Dawn I Die is where I'd go to for George Raft. Um, it was, but there has been a, critical reevaluation um oh, i didn't hear about this th- well I, I it really it mainly comes from a, a man named jonathan rosenbaum uh, in 1999 uh, he wrote that uh he describes you and me as among lang's most unjustly neglected hollywood pictures not an unqualified success by any means but interesting imaginative and genuinely strange and i think that's a good way to look at you and me because we've talked about a lot of classics on this show. Yeah. We haven't really talked a lot about, well, on Jack Benny films, but that's a different. Yeah. That's a different boat. Classification. Of, there's a, di- it, it's a classic to me. Yeah. And <laughs> to the people I've talked to. But, um, but this is a, an instance where we're talking about a kind of like, not a programmer piece necessarily, but it's, it's definitely not a classic that has gone on to influence generations. Yeah. What it has at its disposal is the idea of a director from another country coming in and working within the Hollywood system. And for some, it worked out pretty good right away, such as Hitchcock, because he goes over and makes Rebecca and he's allowed to flourish going forward. Lang seems to need to grapple a little bit with the studios and with where they want him. Because they give him a noir off the bat, and then they just kind of assign him stuff. And he breaks out of that and does his own innovations with noir. So my guess is that this was also a lesson learned for others that don't give Lang this kind of material. Because one, he won't respond to it. And two, (laughs) it's not good. It's not good for him to do this. Um, But I will say that this film... It was such a it was such a like revelation to look at Long doing a film that really, for what it should be, succeeds, but for what he would want to do doesn't succeed. Like he's just he's out of his element. He's a Donnie here a little bit, but for somebody who's out of his element, he does manage to provide grandeur and flourish to an otherwise simple and thankless film i think that that's the key thing is that like it's a good example of how a director ultimately at the end of the day if they're a strong enough presence they will take material that is mundane and make it something incredible like i will put james cameron in this category with avatar avatar is a pretty standard story uh you know like it's a pocahontas story but he innovated it with CG, 3D. 
these immersive worlds, that's what makes it stand out. Um, Steven Spielberg uh, takes something as simple as a story about finding another man lost amid the Battle of World War II and turns it into an innovative war film with some of the most innovative imagery you've ever seen. You and Me doesn't fall into that same category, but you have a simple screwball rom-com gangster film. And what Lang does is lay into the element he knows best, which is the crime and the seediness and the depraved. In, in a lot of ways, it's an early noir to a degree. Not, not by theme, but by look, by imagery. And then that imagery gets transposed through him and many other directors that came over to America to create the noir movement that we get, which kind of starts with Houston, but really gets solidified with double indemnity. Um, so Henry, I, I'm kind of curious. We've ended you talking about a lot of classics on this show, whether they be from the international sector or from the American sector. How did it feel kind of watching just a typical programmer film? Oh, I love typical programmer films, especially from this era. It's such an interesting glimpse into, because I feel like it's it's very easy to look back on like older eras of film and be like, ah, the good old days. But it's really because we're not seeing the filler in a way, and so it's like mm-hmm. I love I love seeing like these kind of like, eh, kind of films from, from like the thirties and forties because it really gives you an idea of like if you were into film then this is what you were seeing. Like it was, yeah. there is more to than just, just the classics or whatever. You have these films that do build a persona of what the film, of what the film industry is. Uh, yeah. And I always find because that very fascinating. Well, and we, I always go back to one of Oppenheimer's lines about, I think it's Jess Oppenheimer. Or, no, 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 no. Sorry. Um, the Epstein's. I always go back to the, I always go back to the Epstein's with this. Uh, I think it's Julius Epstein said in one of those Casablanca documentaries, he said, we were making a picture a week, 52 pictures a year of factory mentality. Now, by the time he's making Casablanca, it's not one a week, but there was a mentality at that point. They were making our movie one a week. They would take the director who was working on one film as they were finishing it, put him on a new project and bring in a replacement director for like the final couple days. Yeah. They did that with the Hound of the Baskervilles. And so I, I look at this as, an example of how we like to think we like to, we, we as film nerds tend to think cinema is dead every five fucking minutes. Yeah. And I, I think that that's the worst statement that can be made. And you and me as an example of it, like guys, there's always been this fodder or we've this always been bad commercial. at this. Like, like, <laughs> <laughs> this is the new development. Like, yeah, the 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 difference is is just it's all surrounding men in tights as opposed to screwball comedies like this. These are programmers. Not every screwball comedy is a classic. There's a lot of screwball comedies that nobody fucking talks about yeah. because they don't have the same elegance or grandeur as a Princess O'Rourke or a My Man Gottfried or an Awful Truth. This is an example. It's a gangster film example of that. You know, we talk about the Public Enemy, Little Caesar, uh. Each Dawn I Die, Angels with Dirty Faces. But there's a lot in between, like Larceny, Larceny Incorporated, uh, uh, Invisible Stripes, uh, Brother Orchid. Brother Orchid I love. It's a fun movie. Um, it, those are films that were made in between. Um, a Slight Case of Murder is a flat-out comedy. That is a flat-out comedy with gangsters stuck in it. And that's an example of 
how they were adapting to the new inhibition of the code, but also in a certain way trying to elevate the gangster to a different level. It was not the right direction for it, but they tried it. And all of it comes out of the desire to make money. This is the point. It's all designed to make money. You and me was designed to get box office. They think you have a noted director, two big stars, and a story by Norman Krasna. It can make some money. Not necessarily. Like Sometimes these things just fall through the cracks on that. And when you realize that Golden Age Hollywood is full of errors just as it is hits, you start to realize that the film industry itself hasn't really changed so much as the technology and the genres have changed. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like anybody on film Twitter who wants to say that film is fucking dead because superheroes are killing it. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm kind of worn out by superheroes myself, but they're not ruining cinema. Yeah. Cinema itself isn't ruined. It's evolving and it's growing in a different direction yeah. as it always does. But you still have to make the popcorn feature to support those weird off to the side projects. They make at Oscar time. Yeah. And you and me is kind of one of those in between films. Um, on that note, Henry, aside from what we've discussed, is there anything that you can think of that this film brings to the forefront in terms of something you can take away today? Like um, for, the, for, for film that we see today or filmmaking that we see today? I know that's a rough question because it's not as innovative as other films we've discussed. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, I mean, I can, if someone came to me and was like, oh, what my favorite film of all time is uh, You and Me. I don't know if I would believe them, and I feel like that would almost be a red flag. <laughs> and uh, oh, I, you know what? I, I can I push back on that a little bit. Push back, I love it. I am surprised how many people will name a film that I've never heard of or never seen or think little of as their favorite film. No, not to say that that, that that's wrong. I would just yeah. say if you've gotten to the point where you have seen enough film that you get to watching you and me i don't i don't know how this could be anyone's favorite fritz long movie (laughs) no 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 especially fritz long yeah no i get what you're saying yeah no i i do feel like that that this is a this is an oddity for fritz long fans yeah when it comes to general hollywood fans i feel like it'd be more successful than the fritz long camp i feel like if you just say this is a gangster movie that happens to be directed by Fritz Long. I think it'll play better for people. I think this would be a good film, a, a good film for the film club that I'm in because we'll see a film that we're not, you know, we're not having any major expectation of, and then we'll be surprised that something works in it or something is charming and clever about it. And I think Long is the reason that this film stands out in any way, shape, or form. It's weird that this isn't a Fritz Long film as we know it, but if it if Fritz Long never made the movie, we'd barely ever recognize its existence. Yeah. Sometimes these directors have such a legacy that you will dive deep into their filmography and you'll find something that you never thought you'd see. Yeah. And you never thought you would get out of that person. I feel like that was Spielberg in 1941. Well, I was I was you about go- to say, this is the equivalent of someone telling me their favorite Spielberg movie is always. It's like, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. listen, that's not a bad movie. But if you were got to the point where, of watching all of Steven Spielberg's filmography and that you got to watching always, I don't know how you could possibly like that one the most. And so, or 
Or the BFG. Yeah, or the BFG. I, That's I, another I, example. I still haven't like, seen the BFG. No uh, one has. Uh, what's it, what, like, what's so. an example? <laughs> James saw it, and yeah. he, he, he derailed it, <laughs> derided it heavily on Real Nerds Podcast in a mashup episode with the Neon Demon. Yeah. Like. <laughs> it's still one of my favorite episodes, because it's just like, these two don't belong together at all. <laughs> um, but no, the I agree. and And like... Or like George Lucas. You think of George Lucas as Star Wars. Did you know he made American Graffiti? Yeah. You might not know that off the top of your head. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you shouldn't expect a child who's getting into Star Wars at this age to realize that at all. Um, and like uh, Martin Scorsese um, doing King... Uh, 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 Age of Innocence. Uh, all that. Uh, Age of Innocence is a good one. I was going to say um, uh, New Clinton. York, New York. Oh yeah, like, no. Kundun falls in line with me because he's always dealt with the religious not, religious right. themes you, in his films. From a large, you're right. From a large perspective, that's right. Yeah, but like with all these examples, we're saying you don't expect Fritz Long to do light, frothy yeah, rom com, exactly. and yet he did it. And I forget it every fucking minute of it. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's funny is that like looking through his filmography, he made westerns later on in his career. Yeah, um, he. You know, long. We're gonna keep talking about him, but I will tell you that like he left America at a certain point. Last film he made in America was Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, um, and then he went back to Germany for The Tiger of Eschenauer, uh, Eschenpur, The Indian Tomb, and then The Thousand Eyes of Doctor Mabusa. With his last notable film appearances being in the 1963 film Contempt uh, by Jean Luc Godard. And uh, playing himself in that William Friedkin documentary uh, conversation with Fritz Lang. Um, but in between that, he made some very innovative noirs and whatnot. But he had to kind of get over this hump, I think, to know what he wanted to do. And he had, at a certain point, control over his material. And I don't know the full extent of it yet. But I do know that films were offered to him that he would want to do, but then they wouldn't want to do any deal with him under his production company. And so that's why like uh, Winchester 73 is a good example. Fritz Long was going to do Winchester 73. Oh, really? But Universal didn't want to. Yeah. But when Universal didn't want to deal with his production company. Yeah. Huh, that's really I was shocked too. Yeah. yeah. We just talked about it in an episode that should already be out by now. And I think that that's an interesting takeaway from Long is that he wouldn't never try to extend his reach. But he just learned his limits. Um, and on that note, Henry, thank you for doing this last-minute ballyhoo. Speaking of reaching your limit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've 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 hit a two-hour one. This is a short one, for, honestly, because we needed to talk about it a little. I, I think it needed to happen now or it wasn't going to happen. Ever. Yeah. And I'm very happy that you were able to make some time today to talk about it. Um, and really quickly, Henry, remind the people what you do, what you can do, what you'll always do. Yeah, so uh, if you want to uh, connect with me, I am a screenwriter, voiceover guy. Uh, I do, I do sound editing. I do really, you know. If you want to hire someone, just hire me. That's that's all you got to do. Just hire me. Uh, but can I hire you to work in a department store? As long as you pay me. As long as well, but crime though, crime though can't never pays. I can't do oh, that. Oh, so see, you, you learned this Brechtian fucking lesson. Thank you so much, Henry. Oh, I love lessons. Learning. You, no, you, I, I am very proud of you. I am so glad that you are my ad- adopted heaven son. Yeah. 
I'm the adopted heaven son. So, uh, but if you're Papa interested Lang, in me, Papa Lang, <laughs> Papa Lang, please. Um, but uh, oh, if, no, you've had enough cookies. Uh, if you want to follow my updates, or whatever on Twitter, I'm dark underscore Americana. Uh, if you want to hire me to talk in your project or whatever, I am Fiverr.com slash Henry Jarvis VO. Uh, so mm-hmm. hire me there. And, uh, and if, or if you just want to hang out, uh, text me at 303. <laughs> um, <laughs> Bleep! Um, I'm saving you, Henry. I don't want you to dox yourself. Ah, okay. <laughs> That's me, Fritz Lang, preventing doxing since 1932. The king of preventing doxing, Fritz Lang. Yeah, so. Fritz Lang, German expressionist, innovator, and doxing antivirus software. of course <laughs> um thank you so much sir we're gonna have you back again as always oh, i can't wait i think we i think we need to we need to bring you in i think we need to bring you in for expressionism but from another director <gasps> i think how would you feel about nosferatu i could do that nosferatu you willing to come back in october for the i love vampires nosferatu? you love vampires but do they love you um I mean, no. I'm. I mean, for your would they want you for your blood? <laughs> no, I'm a oh negative. So uh, no one's really interested the in my vampire, blood. The 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 vampire Bella Lugosi comes up to you in your bed to come and get you. Gets to the neck and he goes, "No, no fucking way! No, yeah. no, no, no!" I have a I have what I like to call uh, tainted blood. And uh, Henry, Henry, I hate to tell you this, but you are absolutely terrible. <laughs> Just absolutely terrible. People tell me that I taste awful, and so yes, and I have I I have evidence. <laughs> <laughs> I got the vial and I I brought it to the, the Museum of Vampires and said, no, nope, no, nope, this is a this is a bad blood. Bad You've blood. Got bad blood. Bad blood. And it's not because I hate him. It's just he has literally bad blood. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, buddy. And this is gonna wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back half of the show. On the next episodes coming up, uh, we are going to be treated to another visit from the UK. Um, we're going to be having podcaster, uh, former Carmax writer Steve Noble on the show to talk about William Castle and his film The Tingler. The Tingler is loose in this theater, so you better scream. Scream for your lives here at the Ballyhoo. Um, and coming up, we're going to have Erin Mullane returning along with her co-host from her show, The Required Viewing Podcast, Chloe Riggs, to talk about... This is a big announcement, guys. A long time ago on this show, we were going to do some Orson Welles talk, and it didn't really happen, but Orson Welles stuck around and kept sticking his ego-ridden nose into this show, his lovely ego-ridden nose. Well, it's going to happen. We are going to talk about Orson Welles' great tragedy in terms of filmmaking. The Magnificent Ambersons <gasps> will be discussed on the show. That's right. It's a big announcement for me. I know that it may not be big for others, but trust me, this is one of the greatest crimes committed by a studio in cinema history, and we're going to talk about every fucking detail of how Orson Welles was screwed over by RKO Studios and betrayed by Bob Wise that... Uh, I, I liked West Side Story, but God damn it, Bob. Um, and additionally, we will be having... Ryan Frost back to talk about an Irene Dunn double bill and Corinne Westerman from Real Nerds Podcast will be on to talk about Pride and Prejudice from 1940. So stick around for all that and more. But until all of that, until night, until next time, folks, good night.
This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Yeah.